Here's the new Cold War podcast with Edward Lucas. The pandemic has not stopped geopolitical trends. Indeed, it may have accelerated them. As I wrote in this long piece for the Daily Mail in April 2020, the coronavirus is giving the communist regime in Beijing a chance to gain a decisive advantage. China has, it seems, won its battle against the coronavirus. It may have won the war for global supremacy as well. That would be a paradoxical outcome. The coronavirus outbreak originated in China, reportedly in the wet livestock markets in the city of Wuhan. The, to us, bizarre habits of eating virus-infested wildlife such as snakes and bats, as well as the critically endangered pangolin, which are on sale in these markets, is a minority taste in modern China. But in an interconnected, densely populated urban environment, it's an epidemiological nightmare and a danger that the Chinese authorities have persistently ignored. Delay and deceit over the origins of the outbreak cost precious time and many thousands of lives, both in China and subsequently in the rest of the world. Indeed, the Chinese Communist Party is still lying about the true number of cases and deaths, according to a US intelligence report leaked this week. It's led to an increasingly fierce war of words between the two countries. But as other countries struggle to cope with the pandemic, China's relative success is striking. There are obvious reasons for that. Unconstrained by considerations such as legality and privacy, the authoritarian regime in Beijing used, and is still using, mandatory quarantine and other draconian measures, such as tracking individuals through their mobile phones, infrared cameras to measure fever, and facial recognition software, and they're using them to stop the pandemic in its tracks. While we in the West struggle with lockdown and social distancing, life in almost all of China is returning to normal. Restrictions are partially or wholly lifted, transport between cities resumes, factories start producing, and warehouses start filling up with goods again. A timely new book by a leading Asia expert, Kishori Mahpobani, puts the question bluntly, has China won? His argument is that the decisive and effective Chinese leadership has outstripped the United States, whose economic, political and social model is failing. The Trump administration's cack-handed response to the coronavirus pandemic is surely proof of this. And though Mahbubani overlooks some of China's flaws, the veteran Singaporean diplomat's scathing critique of conceit, greed and short-sightedness in the West is all too justified. It makes this week's bombastic talk in Downing Street of a reckoning with China once the pandemic is over seem dangerously overconfident. It's one thing to stand up to Vladimir Putin's crooks and spooks in the Kremlin. Russia's shrunken, stagnant economy exports little apart from natural resources. But China's another matter. Our thirst for cheap goods has fueled the boom there, making it the world's manufacturing powerhouse and a vital part of our supply chain. Untangling those relationships will be a slow and costly business, even if we do so together with our allies. As Charles Parson, once the top China watcher in the British government, argues in the latest edition of Standpoint magazine, which I edit, we do not have a strategy for dealing with China. But China has a strategy for dealing with us. For years, the Beijing regime has been playing a game of divide and rule against a squabbling and self-indulgent West. But it put its tactics into a new gear during the pandemic. 
First, it sprayed the media landscape with absurd conspiracy theories, claiming, for example, that the coronavirus was engineered in an American lab as part of a plot to damage China. Then it highlighted the weaknesses in other countries' approach to the outbreak under the guise of helping them. It used its manufacturing clout to ship what seemed like huge quantities of medical supplies to hard-hit countries, accompanied by demands for political and diplomatic concessions. Again, this story was largely manufactured for the media. Much of this aid represented deliveries based on existing commercial contracts. But the image of a confident, capable and generous China, a true superpower, contrasts all too sharply with the flailing response of Donald Trump's administration in America, or indeed with the increasingly hapless efforts of our own government here in Britain. But for all our frustration as our own leaders, we cannot ignore how this pandemic has highlighted China's long-term strategy and motivation. Be in no doubt the People's Republic of China aims by 2049 to dominate the world. That's not paranoid scaremongering, it's the explicit goal of the Chinese leader, President, or make that Emperor for life, Xi Jinping. He wants his country to be fully developed, rich and powerful, and at first sight few would quarrel with that. The Chinese people's brains and hard work have indeed lifted the country from the destitution and terror caused by the insanity of Chairman Mao's hardline ideological experiments. Where communism failed, capitalism has triumphed. The booming Chinese metropolises make our own cities seem shabby and backward. Chinese products are often better, more modern and more reliable than their Western counterparts. We should rejoice at the Chinese people's newfound prosperity just as we should admire their culture, but we should fear the ruthless regime that rules them. For though the Chinese Communist Party speaks of friendly cooperation between East and West, its unbridled ambitions are anything but friendly. It wields ruthless diplomatic, economic, military and technological power in pursuit of this aim, a world run along Chinese rules. And these rules should chill our hearts. The first is that the party's word is law. Criticism is muffled at home by the Great Firewall of China, which prevents 1.4 billion people receiving online information from the outside world, and communications between the Chinese people are monitored and censored. Those who speak out pay a terrible price. We already know of the terrible fate of Tibet, but also of the country's Muslim minority, the Uyghurs of Western China. Their historic culture has been obliterated, with a million or more people dispatched to mind control camps where they are forced to breach their religious customs. Uyghur families are forced to accept ethnic Chinese men as lodgers, unwelcome guests who not only police the family's most private moments, but demand sexual favours from their hosts. Shamefully, the countries of the Muslim world, normally so vocal in support of their co-religionists, have stayed silent about these abuses. I recently met Lu Jia, widow of China's best-known political prisoner, the late Lu Jia Bo. The winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, he died in agony from untreated liver cancer after being jailed for inciting subversion of state power. The first his wife, then also under house arrest, knew of his death was when the secret police arrived at her house with a form relating to the disposal of his body. And let us not forget Li Wenliang, the brave 34-year-old ophthalmologist in Wuhan. After he warned fellow medics of this new infection that could trigger fatal pneumonia and urged them to wear protective clothing, the police forced him to sign a statement 
admitting that his warning constituted illegal behaviour. He died last month after contracting coronavirus from patients. But at least we know of his fate. Another whistleblowing doctor, Ai Fen, also in Wuhan, has simply disappeared. Her online article detailing the official reprimand she received from highlighting the growing emergency has vanished from view too. The regime is also trying to suppress foreign criticism. Chinese embassies across the world have been lambasting news outlets for critical coverage, spraying accusations of racism, xenophobia and prejudice, and even demanding gratitude. A letter from Zen Rong, a spokesman at the Chinese embassy in London, published in a British newspaper this week, took exactly that line, lambasting a report that had carried criticisms of China for its mishandling of the coronavirus and arguments for tough new trade restrictions as a result. Disregarding China's huge sacrifice in the fight against COVID-19 is slander, the spokesperson wrote. This is part of what Xi Jinping calls wolf diplomacy, a newly assertive take-no-prisoners approach to the outside world. It involves bullying and threats, even over the tiniest and most symbolic opposition. And it works. Our leaders are scared to speak out on human rights in China. And the bullies of Beijing also try relentlessly to prevent us having any contact with the other China, the democratic, friendly and prosperous country of Taiwan. Taiwan happens to have conquered the coronavirus far more efficiently and humanely than the communist authorities on the mainland. It gives real aid to other countries struggling with the pandemic. But no matter, the island state is treated as a rebel province. China's nobbled the World Health Organization to the point that officials at that UN body refuse even to mention the word Taiwan in public. When a brave TV reporter from Hong Kong quizzed the WHO's Bruce Aylward about this, he simply hung up on her. And the video of that went viral on the internet. There are some things that even the bossiest bureaucrat cannot control yet. Of course, libraries could be filled with books about the crimes perpetrated by the Chinese Communist Party against its own people in past decades at the cost of tens of millions of lives. Countless atrocities are also perpetrated against the environment. And Chinese people rightly point out that our own record, of course, is far from perfect. We in Britain got rich by polluting the environment. Remember William Blake's dark satanic mills in Jerusalem. We hunted species to extinction too. In addition, Britain and other Western powers took ruthless advantage of China's weakness in the past, not least during the infamous Opium Wars of the 19th century, in which we forced the ailing imperial authorities to allow us to sell that debilitating narcotic. But the modern Chinese party state makes the British Empire even at its most callous seem benign. Business, political and administrative power are fused into a single organism. The huge home market and the ruthless treatment of outside companies mean that the economic playing field is tilted inexorably in China's favour. Any Western company that does business in China has to submit to Chinese rules, and these include the presence of a Communist Party cell inside the business with the right to dictate to the nominal management. Intellectual property is systematically purloined, questions discouraged. We see the terrifying consequences of inaction also with Huawei. A so-called independent company, this technology giant is in reality a wholly owned and controlled subsidiary of the Chinese party state. Its devices and software are indeed cheap, but the real cost comes later. By allowing Huawei to play a role in our new 5G mobile network, as our government has done, we give the brutal bureaucrats of Beijing the keys to our country's future. 
Some of our closest allies, Australia and the United States, for example, have vetoed Huawei's presence in their infrastructure, but not us. Yet China's mass surveillance machine is not just aimed at keeping its own population under control, it's also harvesting data about the outside world, including us. And now China is launching an audacious bid to shape the future of the internet. The current anarchic structure is no longer reliable, Chinese officials argue. And they're right that the internet, reflecting its roots as a network for amateurs and academics, was never designed for its modern role as the central nervous system of our civilization, and it offers enormous scope for criminals, hooligans, and other malefactors. But the Chinese proposal should chill our blood. Proposed by the telecoms group Huawei, together with state-run companies China Unicom and China Telecom and the country's Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, the new IP standard will be voted on at a meeting in November of the International Telecommunications Union, the ITU. That's an intergovernmental body that has long wanted to take control of the internet. The proposal would replace the current decentralised model of the internet, where decision-making about sending and receiving data rests with individual users and their computers, with a top-down model that would, in many countries, give state-run telecoms companies control of our browsing and internet use. Yet the tide is turning. Many Conservative MPs are furious about this country's kowtow to China over Huawei. They also note the damage it's doing to our intelligence relationships. With Huawei influence baked into our telecommunications infrastructure, countries like the United States will no longer be willing or able to share their secrets with us in a way that we've taken for granted since the 1940s. Other countries are waking up too. The European Union now counts China as a systemic rival. Australia has passed an unprecedented package of new laws, criminalising foreign meddling in its politics and enforcing a mandatory register for those lobbying on behalf of outside powers. We should urgently consider similar measures. The book that sounded the alarm about this in Australia was Silent Invasion, by a leading academic called Clive Hamilton. In a tacit affirmation of his thesis, he struggled to get his book published, but when it did appear, it became an instant bestseller. Hamilton's next book, Hidden Hand, is about China's invasion of Britain. Out later this year, it will make alarming reading, and it should shame those at the heart of our establishment who've taken money and favours from the regime in Beijing. Our plight may seem dire, but we have two effective responses, solidarity and spontaneity. Communist bureaucrats believe that just as they operate according to rigid plans and hidden instructions, the rest of the world must work the same way. So when we act on our own initiative, they're baffled. A free society is full of people and organisations with freedom of action. As individuals, businesses, charities and universities, we can exercise that freedom, downgrading ties with the communist regime on the mainland and promoting contacts with Taiwan or with the campaigners in Hong Kong, and of course those who stand up against bullying inside China. The splendid mayor of Prague, Zdeněk Hřib, showed the way last year. Chinese representatives threatened him with sanctions because of the city authorities' support for human rights. No problem, said Hřib. Threaten us? We will boost ties with Taiwan instead. There's also safety in numbers. It's easy to punish an individual, person, newspaper, business, university or country. But if the opposition is replicated dozens, scores or hundreds of times across nations, the bullies are powerless. China's a big country, but it cannot bully the whole world. 
we need to show solidarity with all those who come under fire from China. If we don't stand by them, who will stand by us when it's our turn to be in the firing line? Now, many may feel that this is no time to be picking fights. The real reckoning when the crisis passes should perhaps not be between Britain and China, but with the bureaucrats and politicians who have delayed and bungled their response to the COVID-19 outbreak, inflicting colossal economic, human and social costs on the rest of us. But we should remember, the great virtue of our system is that we are able to hold our rulers to account for their mistakes. Let's hope we can keep it that way, because the same cannot be said about China. This is Edward Lucas with the New Cold War podcast. You can find more about me, my books and other publications at edwardlucas.com or follow me on Twitter at Edward Lucas. This has been a homegrown media production. For more on the New Cold War, please visit edwardlucas.com.